guys, we're in the middle of a pandemic and these are trying times. It's hard on our mental health, our mental state. And this is why I love our sponsor today, BetterHelp. They're the largest online counseling platform worldwide. They change the way people get help with facing life's challenges by providing convenient, discreet, affordable access to licensed therapists. BetterHelp makes professional counseling available anytime, anywhere, through a computer, tablet, or smartphone. It's brilliant. Sign up today. Go to betterhelp.com backslash solving healthcare and get 10% off sign up fees. COVID has affected us all, and with all the negativity surrounding it, it's often hard to find the positive. One of the blessings it has given us is the opportunity to build an avenue for creating change, starting right here in our community. Discussing topics that affect us most, such as racism in healthcare, maintaining a positive mindset, creating change, the importance of advocacy, and the many lessons we have all learned from COVID. If you or your organization are interested in speaking engagements, send a message to quadcast99 at gmail.com, reach out on Facebook at Quadcast, or online at drquadjo.ca. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quadro Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Quadcast Nation, listen. We got a boogie changer on the show today. Dr. Wes Ely, let me tell you, this is a man that has legit help transform healthcare within critical care. He is revolutionary and it's a true privilege to have you on the show. Welcome, Dr. Ely. Thank you, Quajo. It's my privilege. And I tell you uh, this, every deep drawn breath title of the book, this has been a project thinking about it for 10 years, writing it for three years to try and get something pat in addition to the science to help people understand that we have the capacity to hurt people or we have the capacity to truly be healers and help them. And what I want us all to do is ask ourselves the hard questions. Are we doing all that we can to bring healing to these people that we come to serve? Amen. Amen, Wes. And this is exactly what it comes down to, because I can't tell you how many lectures I've given teaching the students, residents about, you know, our role in the intensive care unit is not just to restore life, but it's also to restore function, get people to where they want to be. And this is what was so great about your book is illustrating how we need to achieve that, how we really, and like how we've almost in some ways lost our way, you know, where the focus needs to be. Absolutely. You know, one of the best nurses in the book, Marianne Barnes-Daly said, Our job is not just to get these people to survive. It's to get them back to the life that they want to live. And, you know, this whole book, Quajo, is full of real people, real names. This is not a memoir. This is a narrative nonfiction book of true human beings, patients, family members, and the scientists who have changed critical care over the past 20 years. Mm. And this story is about you, your parents, your mom, your loved ones. It's all of us because we have, on average, two ICU stays before we die. 
So it's going to involve every person on the planet, basically, even those in the LMICs, lower middle income countries where critical care is spreading quickly. Amen. Amen. And maybe, I mean, you're, you're touching on this a bit, but like what really motivated the book? Like there's one thing to publish. There's one thing to, you know, uh, you know, teach, but this is, you know, a unique writing a book is not unique, but in our profession, this is extremely unique to, to bust out a publication like this to try and get the word out. So what was the motivator? You know, Quadro, I carried around, I'm gray haired now. You can see I'm, I'm 58 years old. I carried out a lot of guilt and a lot of shame for a lot of years because I went into this to try and give people a voice, to try and make people feel heard. Uh, you know, I was a farmer when I was a young boy and I saw the, the migrant workers and they were stuck. They didn't, nobody was listening to them. They didn't have a safety net. And I devoted myself to, to try and help people who don't have enough of a voice. And then as a physician, I saw myself doing things, overly immobilizing people, overly sedating them, separating them from their families. And these things were dehumanizing. And they were not magnifying the human dignity that is innate in every person on the planet. And I thought to myself, this is not okay. So I became a physician scientist and we've done these large multi-scale, you know, multi-site clinical trials, 2,000, 4,000 people, published them in the New England Journal of Medicine, JAMA, Lancet. But after a while, I realized after 15 years of this, no manner of these papers was going to get the message out to the patients and families that needed this information so they could be autonomous and advocate for one another. Like basically giving the power back to the family to be able to advocate. You know, that's right. So I want smart. people to feel to keep me honest, Quajo. As a doctor, I want them to say to me, Dr. Ely, Dr. West, you're not doing your job. My mom is suffering. I'm not there with them in COVID. And you've taken the families away from the bedside. Mm. That's anti-medicine. That's anti-healing. And there's nothing right about that. It, it is outright wrong. And it's an injustice. And we've got to we've got to own that and fix it. I love how you, you put it, though. It's, it is anti-medicine. We are here to heal. We're here to serve. And if and the, the thing that's been crazy about COVID is like, you know, we often are ignoring data. Like we know how to protect the, the families and the patients. Like and I'll be honest with you, like there's more detriment, I think, that we did by not allowing families to connect than I, I could think of. Like, I, I, I don't. Oh, you know Roger, I mean? how many people are. This is crazy to think about this, and we won't know the answer to this question, but how many people are dead in the ground because they lost hope because the people they love the most that could have stimulated them to desire to live weren't with, with them, weren't present, and they just lost their way. And when you're delirious in an ICU bed, immobilized, and there's nobody around, think of where your brain goes. Think mm -hmm. of where that person's brain goes, all the bad places, all the scary places, and they lose their way. And, you know, it's a beautiful thing when people can find their why to live. Viktor Frankl talked about this in Man's Search for Meaning. After he got out of Auschwitz, he said, if a man has a why to live, he can get by with almost any how. That's a famous Nietzsche quote. But Viktor Frankl said it four times in Man's Search for Meaning. But we are letting people lose their why to live, and that is not okay. It's so well put. Like We need to help them find their why and and take away those barriers. Uh, Wes, like, let's maybe let's walk through the journey of like how far we've come within critical care when it comes to, um, 
you know, how we used to treat our patients and what the, the future looks like or where our goal should be in terms of, uh, especially what I'm thinking about is mobilization and sedation and so forth. Sure. Well, um, in, 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 in this book, every deep drawn breath, which, as I said, I call it EDDB. And by the way, I'm not making any money off this book. Every mm. penny from this book is going back to survivors and patients because I shouldn't make any money off my patient stories. But in this book, I outline that the way that critical care about was in the 50s and 60s with the polio epidemics. We started with mechanical ventilation. And in the 80s and 90s, we moved ahead with the technology, but we did it with increasing crazy modes of ventilation, like inverse ratio. And when we used inverse ratio ventilation, we started deeply sedating, deeply immobilizing our patients. And imagine it's like an ocean. Instead of keeping somebody right below the surface of the water to keep them comfortable, we're shoving them down with sedatives and paralytics down into the 100-foot range. Mm. And we proved with our BIST and EEG data, et cetera, that burst suppression, that is iatrogenic deep sedation, increases death, okay? And then we built, the in the, between 2000 and 2010, we built the A to F bundle, the ABC DEF bundle. And then between 2010 and 2019, we proved in over 30,000 people, the data are sound, like you said, we know what works. We proved in over 30,000 people that if you can get 70 to 80% compliance with this A2F bundle, which is like a, a safety checklist of six steps. You want to throw, you want to just go through them real quick? Throw it out. Yeah. yeah. A is analgesia. Make sure people aren't in pain. B is both. B is both SATs and SBTs, which that's spontaneous awakening trials and spontaneous breathing trials. All it means is waking people up and turning off the vent to see if they still need it. And if you if you're guessing whether or not they need it, you're going to get it wrong half the time. Mm-hmm. So you've got to turn the drugs off and turn the vent off to, to tell. And that, that was a New England. That was my first big paper in, in, in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1996, where we made popular spontaneous breathing trials. And then J.P. Kress in 2000 in the New England Journal as well made popular spontaneous awakening trials. So that's the B. C is choice of drug. That's avoiding benzos. And during COVID, benzos came back. We had gotten rid of them prior to COVID. D is delirium management. And we asked people to just check if they're delirious, use the CAM ICU or the in Canada, it's popular to use the delirium screening checklist by Joanna Skrovic from Toronto, excuse me, from Montreal. And if they're delirious, follow the Dr. Dre, diseases, drug removal, environment, D-D-R-E. And then E and F is early mobility and family. So that's what it is. Analgesia, both SATs, SPTs, choice of drug, avoiding benzos, D, delirium, E, early mobility, and F, family. And we showed that if you can get 70 to 80% compliance, we showed around the world that you will reduce death, reduce length of stay, reduce bounce backs to the ICU. You're going to also have more home transfers rather than nursing home transfers and less delirium and coma. So it's a humanizing uh, safety bundle, basically. And pre-COVID, we were up to 70, 80 percent around the world. We published this in intensive care medicine. And post-COVID, now we just published a point prevalence study. We're down in the 10 to 20 percent range, Quadro. So it's all falling down and we've got to build it back. A hundred percent. And people, I want to put the point of emphasis that within our world in critical care, there's very few uh, 
like interventions that have shown to improve your like mortality or outcomes that you care about. Okay. So when we got something like this legit, the AB, ABCDEF bundle, something like this that, that we know is effective. There's no way we can't be ignoring that. There's no yes. way we can't be striving for excellence when it comes to this. I love it. I love your energy. You know, my fellows that, that have trained with us, they were down in New Orleans. A lot of them left. I'm in Nashville, Tennessee at Vanderbilt University. And our website, by the way, is icudelirium.org. So people just Google ICU Delirium. You'll find us at icudelirium.org. Tons of stuff on that website for you for free, educational, et cetera. But our fellows left went from Vanderbilt down to New Orleans and called me and said, Wes, we are crazy down here. We have thrown out everything we know and people are dying because of it. And we're going to get back to the basics. Mm -hmm. And they have subsequently gone back and just re-implemented and changed their culture. And they sent me a picture recently of a woman in COVID on the vent on 100% FI2, people 16, wide awake, looking at the camera with a with a pad in her, in her hand saying, get the damn vax to her family. <laughs> so, you know, we we know what works. We can do this. And it is appropriate and humane to do it. We just have to change our culture project. Yeah. And, and Wes, I agree. And it takes effort. Like, uh, let's not let's not be around the bush. This is to do these things. It's effortful. And it's but uh, it, the point here, though, is that it pays off in dividends. And one other point too, Wes, is that we should touch on, too, is the mental impact that having this approach has on our patients, like the amount of you know, PTSD, uh, uh, depression, anxiety that comes from our patients when they leave us. And it's directly co- correlated to how deep their sedation is, by the way, and how, uh, how, how mobile they are. Like this could be profound on people's quality of life. It really is. I love your point. You know, uh, yet yesterday I was in the COVID unit. We admitted five new ones yesterday. And one of the guys was a, was a songwriter, beautiful guy, amazing person. And I said, sir, what matters to you? Instead of saying, here's what's the matter with you, I changed that preposition, what matters to you? He said, I love music. And I said, well, listen, that's great. We can get back to music, but I've got to get you out of this bed. And he goes, I'm too depressed. I said, how about some Elvis? So I put on Elvis Christmas (laughs) song, and he stood up and danced a jig with the high flow nasal cannula on him. And then he got in the chair and he was super uh, exhausted and breathing hard to Kipnik and his sats were in the mid eighties, but that's okay. Hey, he's moving, his body's working. And that's what we need is to motivate people with what matters to them. Quadra. Exactly. Find what is their Why? As you said, what is, uh, what is, what's going to drive them to, to, you know, for betterment. And I love that question, Wes. I might, I might rip that one off and, 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 and teach the kids that one too. But, um, but on, a, on the other, 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 excuse me, on the other end too, I remember in the book, uh, talking about, um, a guy with uh, necrotizing fasciitis. I'm trying to forget. I'm, oh, Kyle Mullikane. What's his name? Well, there was one guy, a, a woman had necrotizing fasciitis on her face. And another guy had had pancreatitis. And uh, that woman, I said to her, I whispered to her every day. She was an ARDS. Her her name is um, Janet Keefe. All these people gave permission to use their stories. And Mm -hmm. all their pictures are on the Internet. If you go to icudelirium.org, there's a photo gallery 
where you can see all these people's pictures. It's, it's really great. Mm-hmm. But I said to her every day, Janet, you are a refined badass. And I said it because there was a picture of her in front of the Eiffel Tower. And I said, you're a refined badass. And you get yourself out of this damn bed. And when she finally woke up, she was in a coma, sedated deep at the time, because she was uh, she was really desynchronous with the ventilator. And, and, and then when she woke up, she said, Dr. Ely, I heard you telling me I was a refined badass. And that saved my life. So two points in that. Tell people what you need them to hear, one. And two is, yes, at the beginning of their time, you might need 12 hours of deep sedation. You might need transient, you know, paralytics. But do not think that what you need on Monday is what you need on Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Every time that sun comes up, it's a new, new game, baby. You've yeah. got to turn the stuff off and force yourself to give a hard ask. Is what I did yesterday still helping now or is it now hurting? Oh, I love I love it. it, it it's so true. It, you know, to, tomorrow is a new day. This is a new, you know, what happened yesterday doesn't necessarily have to be true today. And so to progress, move forward, to inspire, to get, get people moving. It is just what I always say, like, uh, you know, one of the most underrated people in ICU is our physiotherapist. Like oh my if gosh, I yes. were in charge of a, of an ICU, well, I guess I technically am, but like <laughs> I would be flooding them with physios getting getting our patients. You got it. Listen, for all the listeners, because a lot of these people are young on your podcast, I bet you, you know, in 2006 to 2008, we studied stopping sedation and we published this in the Lancet. It's called the ABC study. That was the beginning of our A to F bundle, but it was just the a- ABCs then. And we sh- Get this. We turned off sedation in half the patients every day. The nurses said, it isn't working, Dr. West, Dr. Ely. It's it's not working. I said, why not? They said, well, we always have to turn it back up. And they were remembering, you know, one out of every 15 people. But the other 14, they didn't have to turn it back on. And at the end of the day, we had, by this protocol, cut propofol in half, cut benzos in half, and cut morphine in half, and fentanyl in half. And when we did that, at the end of one year, Instead of dying 45% of the time, these rip-roaring sick sepsis patients died only 30% of the time. Mm. We had a 15% absolute risk reduction in death. That is one of the largest survival advantages ever proven in all of critical care, and it was just by turning sedation off. Oh, man. There's so much. I I don't want to get into the weeds too much because our our audience is pretty – you know, like healthcare providers, not just critical care, but the fact even that – I've been telling our researchers, like, we need to do more bundles, bundled uh, research projects. Like, to think that one intervention on its own is going to show this, you know, as you uh, were able to do a 15% absolute mortality benefit, like, it's a pipe dream with so many of the, the studies that we're doing. But, man, it's uh, it's pretty spectacular. And since, since, your, since your podcast listenership is, is, is broad, I want them all to hear me say this. This topic involves you. It involves all of us because... If you're well, but your loved one's sick and they're in the ICU, you have to become their advocate. Mm. And um, I just published a piece in the Daily Beast. You can look it up, Wes Ely, the Daily Beast. And it's on what you need to know to advocate for your loved one on their next ICU stay. Mm -hmm. Because when you come in there and you start asking us hard questions, not being rude, but just saying, look, I'm aware of the ADAF bundle. Are we doing this for my wife, for my husband, my brother? And you will keep us honest and you will push us to do a better job 
for your loved one. And we need that. And one more thing, Quadra, this is not just humane for the patients and families. It's also humane for us as healthcare mm-hmm. providers because we, this is an anti-burnout program. Mm-hmm. We are less likely to burn out and much more likely to find ma- meaning and satisfaction in what we're doing if we know that we're doing the right thing. And, and we know that we're hurting people when we treat them the way we have in COVID. It wasn't mm-hmm. right. It isn't right. And we're suffering existential harm and moral injury because of this. And that's why people are leaving medicine. It's, it's sad. I, I think this is a, a very underrated point, Wes, about the burnout. And as you said, when we saw this, 20 months, you know, 20 plus months, I'm timestamp this is December 16th. We're doing this interview. Um, you know, the, the component of burnout is heavily related to what we saw dealing with COVID patients. As we talked about, uh, you know, um, having fa- people separated from their families. We took patients uh, west that were over four hour drive. Uh, I can try to think in miles, 250 miles away from their loved ones with the ongoing restrictions for visitors too. And so like, this was traumatic for everyone. And the point you make though, about how reinvigorating it is when we see people get better, like truly better, like they get extubated and they're still delirious. Like, yes, it's nicer or extubated, but it's still like, you know, you see the distress in the family when their loved ones, like, you know, is not who they are at the time. But when you see them truly get better, like it was, um, I had a patient, I, I, very few times I well up when I'm, when we're in the ICU, but there was a patient that had been there for months and uh, we didn't think she would have a, a chance with her COVID. And, but she turned around, freaked. And when she was getting wheeled out of the unit, we, we started clapping. And I, I just, I, and she was, she was welling up. I couldn't help it. I just, I got a little verklempt. I'm getting verklempt just thinking about it actually. But- and you should, because when we keep ourselves at arm's distance from these people, we're not only not entering into their chaos, we're also preventing ourselves from that true richness and the beauty of medicine. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Osler talks about equanimitas, and equanimitas means equanimity, you know, keeping an even keel. I overused that tool greatly when I was a young, a young physician. I don't want to live like that anymore as a doctor. I, I don't want to. I want to... I want to enact what I call my working definition of mercy. And that, that is mercy is the willingness of me to dive in to the chaos of another person's life and provide lifting and healing. And that second part is important because we dive into their chaos all the time, putting in a central line, intubating. That's a, that's, that's diving into chaos, but are we providing the full lifting and healing that we need as physicians and as ICU, as, as anybody in the healthcare profession, if we don't really just meet them where they are, you know, mm-hmm. kneel down, hold their hand, look at them in the eyes and say, I care about all of you, not just your matter, M-A-T-T-E-R, not just your physical substance, but I care about your mind. I care about your spirit. And I want to, I want to walk with you mm-hmm. and I'm not going to leave you. I will not abandon you. And even into survivorship, you mentioned this person leaving and you welling up and, you know, we are setting up all these survivorship clinics now and we're watching these, these, these COVID patients go into their long COVID journey and long hauler journey. And I want to be with them. You know, I go to their houses, I, I call them back and they come, we have survivor support groups here at our center. We have the, uh, our center is called the SIBS center, C-I-B-S, critical illness, brain dysfunction and survivorship. 
And that S is important, that survivorship. I mean, our job is not done when they leave the unit. We have to help them rebuild their lives. And that's really the whole point of, of every deep drawn breath, EDDB, is that, that we have a lot of work to do for these people, millions of people in the upcoming years to help them pick up the pieces of their life. That's why every penny is going back into an endowment to help them. And we're going to make that, that help for Canadians and for Americans and for people in any country. They're going to be able to connect with our SIP Center and we're going to provide them services. That's honestly, it's incredible. It really is incredible because, you know, I, I find with our job, you know, we often ask ourselves, are we just, sometimes there's this attitude that's like, we're just delaying death for some patients or whatever, but you know, there, there are the patients that could get back to where they are close to where they were before. And if we could have the, the tools and the, the energy and the focus to do that, like, absolutely. We need to be doing this Wes. And I, I got to say, you know, and when it comes to what you said too, I forgot, I forgot the term you used to, to connecting with your patients. It was a unique one. Um, it's going to come back to me in a second. Okay. Master, we'll mastery, back, no, ma, 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 anyways, it began with an M. Um, it's funny. Cause as you said, when we're, when we're upstarts, you kind of try and not to get too involved in, or, or like, to engage in the patient. So, cause you want to be able to stay like, uh, like if you get too emotionally involved, then it's a lot of people feel like you can't be objective in your decision-making and it's just oh, equanimity. 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 Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, but I'll tell you, this is a, something that has been so fulfilling as a physician. Like this is probably why I did the palliative care side too, is when you make that connection, yeah. And there's often there's bad results, like the patients pass away and, and so forth, but it makes the job meaningful. It really does. And, and I highly encourage but let's, uh, let's, let's talk about two things related to end of life. You know, uh, Deborah Cook is a very famous Canadian. Oh, yeah, we know and, Deb. Don't worry. Yeah. I know you know Deborah. Yeah. Well, she's all in this book, as you know. And there's a huge section on this in this about her three wishes project. And that's, you know, we, we, we initially think, and your listeners might initially think of death as bad, but we all are going to die. And if we're going to die in the unit or, or, or peri critical illness, then we have to be ready to say, you know what, that death is coming. We're going to make that not a bad thing. We're going to make it a good dying process. We're going to love that person, provide them that mercy. And we can do it beautifully. We can provide that palliative care, primary palliative care in the ICU and really make sure that the person is lifted up, that their, that their dignity is upheld and that we pay attention to what matters to them. And there's all kinds of stories in EDDB about how we do that with dogs in their beds. And, you know, a, a mailman overcame fear of dogs and we brought a dog in his bed. and His heart rate was 140 for three days in a row. We put Bacchus, the god of wine, in his bed and his heart rate was down in the 70s in a matter of 20 minutes. And we did nothing else to him but put that dog in that bed. And these are the beautiful things that we have available to us when we keep our eyes open and when we insist on providing love, you know, Avidus Donabadian, this wonderful quality improvement guru who started QI said the secret to quality is love. Wow. And if we just bring that love, you know, we're going to find the right way forward. And it's not easy. As you said, it takes a lot of work, but it's worth it. It is a hundred percent with, I, you know, I, I, I really like that. I, I I don't know if I've heard that uh, the the ticket be in love, but I, I would be remiss to ask you, like, how do you 
create the culture? Like, how do you create the change? Because there's so many staff that are set in their ways and, you know. Uh, yeah. You, you, yeah. You, I, I want to give you a tool. Uh, here's the tool. This, remember this phrase. What can I do by Tuesday? And I didn't invent that tool. That's the IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, the largest QI program in the United States. But what can I do by Tuesday? So you're in there on Monday and you say, we want to change this culture. Well, we can't change it all at once because culture is hard. But what I can do by Tuesday is I can go find one nurse and one patient. And tomorrow morning, we'll set up a time at 9 a.m. or whatever. And we're going to go to the bedside and we're going to do the A to F bundle on just one nurse and one patient. And we're going to see what works. And we're going to talk about what doesn't work. And we're going to, you know, we're going to wake them up, cover the analgesia, stop, do the SAT, SPT. We're going to switch them off of benzos. We're going to get them out of the bed. We're going to ch- do the Dr. Dre for delirium. And we're going to get their family involved. And, uh, and then we go back on Wednesday, same patient, same nurse, and do it better. And then we go back on Thursday and do it better. And that's PDSA, Plan, Do, Study, Act Cycles. Iterative Cycles of Quality Improvement baby steps, little, little hills, not mountains. And then the next Tuesday, we do a different nurse and a different patient. And week by week, we take one nurse and one patient at a time, these individual PDSA cycles, and you watch yourself go through January and then February and then March. And several months into it, other nurses who never wanted it before and said, no, I'm good. I, I like the way I do it with deep sedation. I like my sheet to be tight. I like the bed to look pretty. And the other nurses' beds are all messed up because somebody's woken up and they're messing the bed up. And the nurse is like, maybe that tight sheet, that pretty bed isn't so worth it. I I see what's happening over there. They're walking Mr. Smith over there. I want to be a part of that. So little by little, people start wanting to be a part of this. They want that action. And that's how you change the culture. You do not do it by saying on April 1st, we're going to all start doing the bundle. It never works that way. Loserville. Loserville. So it's (laughs) what can I do by Tuesday? PDSA cycles, start slow, start small, and go for that. Do you know what I love about it? It just makes so much freaking sense. Do you know what I mean? It just, it's baby steps. It's, uh, it's truly, because it's, as you said, if it comes from above and you say, yo, this is what we're doing now from forevermore. Won't work. Pe- yeah. People get the nuts and the, is that Guess what? Nobody likes to be told what to do. Nobody. Yeah. Anytime yeah. I push anybody, I realize it doesn't work. Yeah. yeah, you have to allow them to come to that. And what you've got is early adopters and late adopters, and neither of them are bad. You know, the late adopters are very important. They have institutional memory. They remember when we tried things and they failed, and they're right. going to keep us honest. So they're right. all important. But do the early PDSA cycles with your early adopters, and then watch the late adopters help calibrate you over time. And don't be in a hurry. Hmm. You know, we're going to do this. We're going to do it over time and we're going to make a lasting change. If COVID hadn't been such a tsunami, it wouldn't have been able to take this down because we built it carefully. We built it over years and we did it well. But COVID was such a crazy thing. No PPE, fear of contagion, no vaccinations that it took it down. But we're going to get, we're going to build it all the way back and stronger because we have the data. And this time we're not starting from scratch. So well put. So well put. Wes, I um, I'm just so impressed. I must say, just the energy, the 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 passion, and like, there's one thing to just walk or talk the talk, but you walked it. 
You freaking marathon this bad boy, man. Well, I'm, I'm not going to give up on this. I thought I was kind of done. I was writing the, the book to, to give it to people and say, look, this is how you can do it where I'm not. But, um, and this wasn't all me. I mean, it was a lot of people, but I, I was kind of handing the bundle off. But now I realize, you know what? For the next five years, I'm doing, I'm going to work with all these other people all over again. And I do not want to take credit for this because so many people are part of this. Mm-hmm. The SCCM's ICU Liberation Group Collaborative has great leadership. It's a beautiful organization. And the ADF bundle is now the formal way that the largest critical care society in the world has said they want to do QI. And that is the Society of Critical Care Medicine. And whether it's India or London, uh, you know, England or Thailand or all of Latin American countries, we're going to do this throughout the world. And I don't want to leave out the LMICs, the lower middle income countries. They they have to be involved. I I work with partners in health down in Haiti to try and get critical Mm -hmm. care down in Haiti. And we've been working in Zambia. We're now doing trials in in Rwanda and uh, Kenya. And it, it's just, we all are involved in this. We're all brothers and sisters and it's a butterfly. When that butterfly wing flaps, that, that is going to be felt all across the world. So everybody let's get involved. Let's do this for each other. You know, what <laughs> Wes throwing down, I feel, I feel like you could be a preacher as well, my friend. <laughs> um, you know, maybe, maybe we can end off with, um, any any stories that come to mind from the the book that your that were your favorite in terms of you know illustrating either the importance of of getting our our personalizing patients or uh, or just just somebody that I, you I'll connected tell you, with. There, there, this is I'm glad you asked that. There's a lot of social justice in every deep drawn breath. There's a there's about thirty different excerpts of things that we do that are parts of epistemic injustice. Episteme means knowledge. And so epistemic injustice was was when we hold knowledge that we don't give to our patients and families, and that's wrong. Uh, Testimonial injustice is a form of silencing others. So here's a story from EDDB that has a bit of both. There was a man named Jimmy Johnson, and he was my patient. It was during COVID. Jimmy was an inmate. Um, he came in, he was an ARDS intubated and he was not allowed visitors and he was cuffed to the bed. And I saw Mr. Johnson on that morning with that big red cuff. And you can see the pictures of the cuff on our website, go to, go to icudelirium.org and hit the EDDB page and go to the, go to the gallery. You can see these pictures. And anyway, Jimmy, I said to the team, why does he have cuffs on? The guy is intubated. He can't hurt anybody. And so they were like, I don't know. And I said to the guard, take those cuffs off him. And they said, we are instructed to keep number 572389 in chains. That's what they said. And I I was livid. So many, and I'm no hero here because many times earlier in my career, I've left those cuffs on thinking it's the rule. But now after writing EDDB, I was like, you know what? I'm not, I can't live like that anymore. And so I wrote an order to the prison warden and guards And I said, I am the doctor and I'm telling you that my medical prescription is you have to remove the cuffs. And within an hour, those cuffs were off of that patient. And Mr. Johnson lifts his knees up in bed. He looks over at me, nods, intubated. And there was so much he said with his eyes to me. And then the next day we excavated this guy and I thought he was for sure dying. We were switching, you're a palliativist. So we were switching our, our ladder that we were climbing from cure to comfort. 
And and I was sure he was dying. I mean, as sure as I've ever been. And we started talking. He was telling me stories. He was telling me when I was little, I used to ride horses. I was always late for dinner. My mom would get mad at me. And and we just shared these stories and started talking about his life. And then we a medical student worked to get his sister there. The, the prison had to override a, a no visitation policy for the prisoner and his sister Johnny Blackwell, that was her name, came in. So Johnny is talking to Jimmy, a, a woman and a man, and, and they're just sharing stories. She was telling me when Jimmy got his uh, first car at 17, he took off. We basically didn't see him anymore, Dr. West. And he had his first daughter within a year. She was born on April Fool's Day. Her name was Shatika. And uh, they were laughing and, and giggling. And you know, he is still alive. He did not die. Because that gave him his why to live back again. And that is the that is medicine. And nothing that I did, antibiotics or ventilator management, none of that is what saves his life. It was being with his sister and being showed human dignity. And that's what EDDB is all about. And I hope everybody listening joins in, gets this book, leave your reviews on Amazon and Goodreads to get people involved in this story. And let's do this for other people. Wow, if that is not motivating Quadcast Nation, I don't know what is. Dr. Ely, thank you so much for agreeing to do this. It's meant the world to us. And I'll tell you, selfishly, I am mad inspired right now to, to change that boogie within the critical care. So thank you so much. Let's do it together. Thank you, everybody. I appreciate you. <laughs>